0: guest speaker here, which is uh, Michael Taylor. Welcome, Michael. Uh, Michael is a a combination of a strategic thinker and hands-on engineer. Uh, He's a conceptual designer and a detailed craftsman. His diverse career spans 30-plus years uh, as a research scientist, mechanical engineer, writer, marketing professional, carpenter, furniture builder, machinist, and professional videographer. Wow, you're a renaissance man. (laughs) His Diverse projects range from high energy laser development to semiconductor manufacturing to kitchen appliance design. Uh, A veteran of several high technology startup companies, Michael founded Berkshire Innovations in 2007 as a product development consulting company. Uh, An internal project to develop a patented folding bread proofer for home bakers has become the central focus of his company. The Broad and Taylor folding proofer was released for sale in October of 2011, and so far is enjoying brisk sales Uh, during its first season. The proofer has been picked up by the by uh, major U.S. and international retailers. So please help me welcome Michael Taylor.
1: Thank you. Um, So uh, I do want to talk to you tonight uh, about um, the process um, that I went through for this particular product. Um, Karen and I spoke at dinner and I learned uh, a bit more about you folks um, and uh, some of the things that you've been doing here, So, and I know that uh, some of you are a pretty sophisticated audience. Um, uh, This uh, process of uh, concept to to commerce for me is about a four, four and a half year um, road, Um, so I can probably talk about what's been going on for the last four years for four days. So... um, but what I really would like to do, instead of just a presentation, I'd really uh, uh, enjoy a conversation. Um, and as we go through this, uh, um, I've got a, sort of a, a menu of different things that I plan to talk about. We can take a look at those and, and maybe spend time on the things that be of the most interest to you. Um, so um, thanks for the introduction. Um, I am an inventor. Um, among other things, and I uh, have taken an invention from concept uh, to the marketplace. Um, and uh, let's see. Um, so as I, as I thought uh, about making the presentation or putting some, together some slides, I just went through in my head kind of the uh, the, the roadmap of, of how I got from where I started to where I am today. And uh, as, as many of you know, I, I, I'm aware, um, there are lots uh, of ways that you can get from A to B in terms of going from a product concept to, to, to taking a product forward. And there's uh, decisions you can make all along the way that would lead you in many different directions. Um, and I don't really, uh, I'm in no position to be able to get up here and lecture you about all of those. What I can really do is just tell you about what I've done and the decisions that I've made and how I've got to where I am um it's um, it's also really interesting as it is uh, occurred to me as I was sitting down putting these slides together is how much the world has changed just in the four years that I have been working on this project some of the resources that are um, around today that are even more commonplace today as we we're talking about at dinner things like uh, the uh, crowdsourcing uh, uh, types of sites like Kickstarter and social media, for collecting money, for new product ideas, things that are, uh, I I guess you could say almost commonplace today, didn't exist at all four years ago, so some of the things that I did uh, were really colored by the resources I had available at the time. If I was starting (coughs) today, uh, I may have made some different decisions, Um, but uh, like I say, I'll uh, I'll go through that. so please, at any point in time, if, if you want to stop me, ask questions, and, and we can talk about things in more detail, and, and other things maybe uh, you know we'll skip through uh, more quickly. Um, but uh, briefly, um, I'll start out just talking a little bit about the concept. I think that uh, in this group, I think you spent a lot of time here uh, doing some things which sounded great to me uh, about uh, working on... Concepts that some of you may have presenting to each other, bouncing ideas back and forth in this forum. It's a fantastic thing to do because one of the things that I um, struggle with myself and have also seen in some of the venues that I've been in while through this process is people who haven't really been through the process of vetting their ideas, putting them out, you know, for some amount of criticism or evaluation from people, maybe just presenting them to their family and friends, people who, you know, you know, tell them everything's a great idea and they get too far down the road with an idea um, that, uh, you know, it's got particular problems. So um, so I think the, some of the things that you guys are doing here is really great. Um, also talking about pro- virtual and physical prototypes, probably won't spend a lot of time on that. I think that's something that, you know, some of the things that I did are already antiquated in terms of the things that are more common today, and I think you guys have uh, spent a lot of time looking at some of the... Uh, things that are available around here. I'll, I'll mention a little bit about what I've done there. Um, I'll talk to you about what I've done in the area of patents and IP briefly, but I'm in no position to lecture about that uh, other than the fact that uh, uh, you know, it's an important area. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you what my strategy has been. Um, we did some interesting things in terms of market analysis uh, sort of at the, and, and this is in the chronological order of how, how I approach this. Uh, After uh, going through the IP protection we did some market analysis uh, that was extremely useful not only to help us understand um, whether or not it had an idea that was worth pursuing but it was really helpful as we went on to the next process of putting together a business plan and and getting funding to move forward. That market research we did was really, really important. so I will tell you basically the, uh, what I went through for those next two steps, business plan and funding, and then, and then talk to you about the process of uh, how we went uh, from, a, from a product concept to go through the product development and actually develop a manufacturing product, manufacture it and get to market, which is really, um, you sort of break it up into years, uh, is about two years to right here, and then the next two, two years have been from product development to Actually, getting product in stores. So any any concepts about, or any uh, comments or questions, or um, about things here that might be of more interest or less interest before I start going forward. I think
0: funding and where to find money is always a you in the interest. You
1: betcha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So. Uh, I think this is something that you've dealt with here, so i won't spend much time on this at all i um, we spoke about this at dinner a little bit. I think s- some of you here or at least somebody here has been to the um, IHA show um, the inventors uh, forum that has been put on there. I was there in uh, in March um, and you know the uh, the uh, inventors Association sponsors a pavilion at the uh, at the international housewares uh, association convention in in uh, Chicago. 60,000 people, it's an enormous show. Um, and this is a pretty cheap way to get in. You basically get a horse stall uh, with a table about this wide that you can present your product. Uh, and it was a great experience. Uh, I was a little bit of fish out of water there in terms of where I was in the pro- am in the process compared to most people there in terms of what I was seeking. Um, but nevertheless, it turned out to be extremely valuable. Uh, just pick two, two meetings that I had during the whole four-day show, and it made the whole thing worthwhile. Um, but I did see a lot of people there uh, that had kind of sad situations that, you know, probably got too far down the road to product concepts, that didn't solve problems that seemed to be problems to the general public, and uh, uh, didn't particularly understand the market that they were selling into. Um, uh, just a, I I mean, obviously the, the problem of, uh, of coming up with a product concept that's solving a problem that doesn't seem to be much of a problem to other people, but it was kind of an interesting thing that came up um, that uh, is worth noting, I think, and that is this, maybe not said very well here, but there were some some people that uh, had product concepts that uh, that had an interesting idea, but it depended significantly on some other product or some other technology in order to make it useful. And what they didn't really consider going into, I mean, just here's a case in point, there was a guy who had um, a, a magnetic spatula, basically, that you could clip to the handle of a frying pan. Because he said, you know, everybody always like, where do you put the messy spatula when you're cooking at the stove? You know, and he had a way that you could clip it to the frying pan. But the problem was, is, is that he basically had a spatula and a frying pan. And you had to have a special kind of a frying pan with a certain handle that you could connect the spatula to with the magnet. And what what everybody told him when he got out and presented to QVC or any of these you know panels that he was presenting to is he said there's a hundred, you don't want to try to get into the frying pan business you know so don't come up with a tech with an invention that hangs its hat on somebody else's product that you're going to have to deal with there you need to kind of have an independent plan of how you're going to get there so um, but uh, there were some really interesting things that the show some people that really hit it and and walked away with uh, you know some some possible deals with QVC and some DirecTV, but a lot of people who basically just went on you know uh, to the next venue trying to to sell their wares it was a, it was an interesting thing um, so uh, you know I, I started um, the, the process for this product um, with uh, a concept coming out of my own need I'm a, been an amateur baker for uh, Decades really, and uh, in in baking in kitchens from Northern California up to the Northeast, I always was, was trying to find a better way to deal with rising bread. I don't know how much anybody here knows about bread, but uh, in the commercial world, there are things called bread proofers, bread proofing ovens. If you've ever been to Subway and look behind the counter, they got two ovens there one on top where they bake the bread, the one below says proofer. That's where they proof the bread. It, it, it creates a low temperature, humid environment which was good for rising the bread. It's basically an area, uh, a, a condition in which you're growing yeast. Um, and so people who are making bread in the home are always trying to find a place to rise bread. The warm spot in the kitchen usually you're doing it in the middle of the winter and it's freezing. And, um, so people do it by hook or by crook at home. Um, and so, uh, you know, based on my engineering background, I'd always been trying to come up with some kind of a way to do this uh, and uh, stumbled upon this idea of, uh, of building a, a device that actually mimicked what a commercial breadproofing oven would do but build it in a way that would be convenient for somebody at home and actually make it fold up so you could store it and put it away because, you know, he wants to, a big box in the kitchen to be able to store so it seemed like kind of a crazy idea, something I would be interested in. I mean, it was a, a kind of a long way down the road before I could convince myself that it was something to really commercially pursue. And you could ask the question, well, it was such a great idea. Why hadn't anybody ever done it before? Uh, because it is something that has never existed, a, a proofing oven for the home market. But I started out, um, you know, uh, building virtual prototypes um, as well as really, really crude prototypes. I mean, literally starting with packing tape and cardboard. Uh, trying to come up primarily with this folding concept, which is the aspect of this product, which is patented, or I should say still patent pending. It's been three and a half, going on four years, and the patent still hasn't been issued yet, although they tell me it's a month or two away now. (laughs) I've heard that before. Um, And, uh, you know, I think at the time that I was starting, cheap 3D CAD was really just coming on the scene. I don't know if you ever have heard of a company called Alibra Design, is, is one of the ones that, uh, I mean, they, they basically, at the time, they changed their pricing a little bit. They they, had come, they basically had a, uh, a free CAD software as well as an entry level. It was like $100 at the time. Um, and they have uh, CAD programs up to uh, a couple thousand now. But they really allow people to come in at the several hundred dollar level. Google SketchUp is something that a lot of people use. It was just brand new at the time that I was doing this. Um, and uh, it's, it's got a lot of capability. But I was able to use uh, CAD software, you know, that I invested at the time just a couple hundred dollars in and actually build um, 3D models that I could send off and have uh, rapid prototypes made. Um, that, you know, uh, even just a few years before, if you were using something like SolidWorks or Pro-E, you know, it would cost you five, $6,000 to get one license to be able to do it. So, I mean, th- this kind of software now is, is much more readily available. And I think it's, it's well within the capabilities of somebody who's got some you know uh, familiar with software to be able to actually do some significant things at home um, to be able to uh, experiment with virtual prototypes. And then connecting that with, um, with, the, uh, uh, with the types of capabilities you have now to have uh, 3D printing done, rocket prototypes from CNC milling systems, there's just lots of fairly inexpensive ways to be able to get uh, prototypes made, and uh, that's not something that I intend to spend much more time on talking about here. I, I get the impression that you know, in this forum, you guys have, have investigated some of that um, kinds of capability. Um, one of the things that uh, that I did in the in the Aliever design, which actually I don't think I can show you here because for whatever reason it's not running on the computer here, is a um, is and again the cap. This is this is a pretty crude. Um, uh, video that, that I was able to make from, from CAD and again this about four years ago in terms of the technology that had, but it turned out to be extremely useful um, both in terms of uh, marketing uh, on the web and in terms of talking to investors. Anyway, uh, it just basically showed how this uh, device opened. And one of the things I have to—I'm almost appalled to tell you—I don't have my product with me. <laughs> um, I came here through a secured route through Albany that I got stuck all day, and I didn't—I was supposed to go back to my office and pick one up. Um, so i will have to rely on some other photos here. Um, um, but um, what I did do was. Um, you know, in terms of uh, what I was able to do in my home workshop, basically, was to go from uh, virtual prototypes to um, using, uh, basically, hand-crafted techniques and rapid prototyping to make a functional, what I would call a functional prototype of the actual product um, that I could use uh, when I was talking to investors, I could use them when I was talking to people about manufacturing, um, and actually... As I'll tell you later, I took this to, to China and Hong Kong with me and showed it a lot of people over there, and it's just, it just was just worth its weight in gold in terms of being able to communicate the concept. So, uh, just for those of you who might you know do the sort of thing and be interested, this was actually uh, what I was able to build out of um, uh, thermoformed uh, ABS sheet. You know, so ba- you know, basically thermoformed and glued to make the body uh, these pieces, uh, and then. Uh, This, much of this part here was, uh, is ABS sheet where all of the hinge pieces uh, I constructed through rapid prototyping. So, and actually ended up gluing the hinges to these pieces here. Um, uh, So, um, total investment uh, in those variety parts. And these are not 3D printed parts. They're actually, they were done with uh, through Proto Mold or the first cut company, if you're familiar with them, that basically you send them a 3D file and they will uh, run it through, they got a whole bank of computers and they run it through almost hands off and cut it on a CNC mill and they'll send you a part the next day and you can get you know, a part sort of that big. Sort of how big it is is how much it costs you. You could get a part about that big for about $80. I think it was, a, it was really about $1,000 in terms of investment to be able to make you know, the individual pieces and the engines to build this. And then scavenge things wherever I could. Um, I, I, um, yeah, in terms of uh, you know what I could do um, to save the most money to be able to put prototype together, I was able to scavenge electronics from other existing retail products. I got a temperature controller from a product that's used to uh, to heat seedlings in, in a greenhouse nursery that had a temperature range that was similar to what I wanted to use, and it operated with. You know, it did, uh, uh, well this one's an analog, but there's a, a digital temperature controller and a thermistor system uh, and uh, a, 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 a low power heater. So I basically could scavenge parts in order to put something together to build a functional prototype I could do some basic work with. It didn't quite have the temperature range that I want um, and this one I actually burned up by uh, turning the temperature up too high, but it was uh, You know, I put the thing together for, you know, including the other parts on the order, of about $1,000. And and it was really, really a worthwhile thing to do in terms of, you know, my ability to carry the product forward. Um, And actually, as I went through and uh, talked to more people and uh, even, you know, going inside to see what's happening inside major appliance companies and manufacturing companies uh, in Hong Kong, I find that, you know, this kind of process of putting together prototypes whether you carve them out of wood. I mean, you know, the guys down at Cuisinart are taking blocks of wood and carving out, you know, the shapes of their next blender and, uh, you know, doing things that you might think are extremely crude. But in order to get that first-level look at, uh, at, you know, uh, at at what a new product might be, it's quite common to do this and as well as to, you know, pull other electronics apart, scavenge things together, whatever you can do to put together a a prototype. It's, It's pretty common. Um, So, that's all I was going to talk about, prototypes, unless anybody had any specific questions about companies, names, resources, or anything like that.
0: What was
1: that material you used? I used, uh, it was ABS plastic um, that is, uh, it's a a thermoform plastic that basically you can use a strip heater, you know, you can buy a strip heater from, uh, you know, these plastic fabrication companies. It's like an element of the oven. You heat the thing up to about 320 degrees, and then you can easily form it. Um, and, you, and, and you can form it yourself, basically bending in a single direction. Uh, you're, they're actually techniques you can use to get compound curves of it that they use with vacuum forming. Um, and actually, not completely out of sight of what you might be able to do in your uh, in your home if you were willing to expend a little bit of equipment on the vacuum forming. But uh, Is that uh, it's. This particular material is solid and it's got kind of a pebble finish on one side but there's also uh, ABS material that's what they call engineering ABS that's really uh, a little bit harder and intended to be machined but you can the nice thing about ABS is that you can machine it you can drill it you can sand it uh, thermoform it you can glue it which is really great because a lot of plastics you might work with like you know polypropylenes and things like that you can machine them but you can't glue them together which is is too bad uh, in some situations because it makes things simpler. ABS yes. is that a chemical? Deviation? Uh Yes. Can you tell us what um, so, uh, no. okay. <laughs> <laughs> is it is? Um. No. Something butyl styrene. I. You know, it, well, what I will tell you is is that ABS is extremely common in uh, home appliances, home, yeah. and it, you can, um, you know, you can thermoform the sheets, but it's also injection molded very, very commonly. Uh, and actually, I had an original idea that my proof would be made out of ABS. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you can make it real shiny. It's very pretty. You can get it in lots of different colors. Unfortunately, it doesn't have the temperature characteristics to be able to hold up to what my proofer needed. So we didn't end up going that way. But it does have some thermal quality. Well, it's got some limited thermal. Yeah, I mean, it's got a. I think it's got an operating range up to like, you know, like 180 degrees F. Yeah, in terms of you know how hot you get the plastic. I mean, um, and uh, if if you design things to keep it away from heat sources, you know it, it's used in a lot of different things. But uh, but there are other you know like pro- polypropylene and other types of materials have a much higher uh, range for temperatures. And when last was CNC, what is it? Uh, that's computer numerically controlled uh, equipment. So basically, uh, their companies now. I mean, uh, you, you went out and saw machine shops here recently. I'm sure you saw CNC gear. Um, this company, ProtoMold, up in Minnesota, I think, has, has set up this amazing system where they've got a whole bank of uh, computers uh, that take files that are sent in, uh, that are you know uh, 3D models, and they can process them into uh, the information needed by a CNC to be able to cut them out almost with essentially with no human intervention um, and so uh, they've got a very efficient way to be able to, to, to get parts in and get parts out at a low cost and if you want parts that are made you know 3D printed parts are great but if you're trying to evaluate things you want real engineering uh, parts very very strong um, sometimes best to cut them out of a solid block of material so they're a great company wow. what's that? Actually, uh, yes. So they make a variety of different plastics, but they now do. um, I know they do aluminum
0: and stainless steel, and that's a brand
1: new new thing. Stainless steel. Pretty much the only limitation is sort of the volume. They can't do more, you know. And there are other things you have to address it from uh, five sides. Uh, And uh, they're a wonderful company. They got other capabilities too. They do. you know, they do 3D printing type of technologies as well as they make rapid, what they call rapid prototyping injection molds out of aluminum uh, for low volume production runs. So, really neat company. What's it uh, glued together
0: with?
1: The glue? Yeah. Um, there are uh, solvents that are particular to right. these different plastics, so, it's a solvent glue for ABS. Um, the uh, weld on if you're familiar with the company Weldon makes a whole variety of solvents for different types of plastics and then that's where I got the uh, the solvent glues. But by being able to glue, I could you know take a part that had a you know a complicated feature at one end and then it was attached to a flat plate and I could just machine the small part and then you know glue it to the large part to save a lot of money from having to machine the whole thing. Any other questions? Um we didn't we did talk, Karen, about whether you've had discussions here, but we must have had discussions about IP, maybe had presentations. Um, you know, it's a huge topic among inventors. Um, and uh, my advice is to get professional advice, you know, that I'm not going to give you any um, other than the fact that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of things out on the web that I would be wary of. Um, and what I did um, when I went through this process is I decided that, you uh, you know, I was going to invest a certain amount of effort, you know, internally in the development of this product, and if I, fe- if I felt like I liked what I came up with, I would invest in uh, the first level of, uh, of path protection, you know, to go ahead and file before I took the thing out and went public with it. So, And it is, as you know, it's expensive. Um, I, I did actually find a, a firm that uh, I thought was real appropriate, um, uh, a firm based out of New Hampshire, uh, Russell Weinzimmer and Associates, um, who's a guy, he actually did patents for some companies that I had been involved with in the semiconductor industry, so I looked at his background and some of the work that he'd done. He worked with Cognix Machine Vision, if any of you know, uh, that company, and, uh, so a solid guy, um, and his team put together the first patent for me. I ended up changing, um, if any of you know, there's a wonderful guy up in Lee, Massachusetts by the name of Malcolm Chisholm, um, who, uh, is specializing in, in patents and he does some teaching around, kind of an unusual guy but really sharp. And uh, I use him now just because I, I want somebody that I can go down the street and talk to rather than, you know, kind of an internet firm that all you can do is interact with them through, through email. Um, and uh, we did uh, file a utility patent and, and it really has been g- coming on four years uh, in November. Um, and uh, although there was an office action here just about a month ago and Malcolm tells me that we really, really are close. Uh, but it's just an unbelievably uh, excruciating process to go through and and a big money sink. Um, I did go ahead and, uh, you know, go through the process to file uh, in Europe as well. Uh, You know, our idea for this product is is that, uh, you know, we're going to market it here in the U.S. and in the Western European countries, so I'm not going to try to patent the thing all over the world, but I figured if I took a patent protection position in the U.S. and in a couple of uh, countries in the middle of Europe, considering the fact that the product is kind of a niche product that appeals to a limited market anyway, nobody's going to mess with it. So actually, nobody might mess with it anyway, I'm not sure I would have had to patent it at all, but uh, that's what I did, yeah. Did you say you have one patent on it, or a patent on the folding part? It is, um, it's a patent, it's, I have one patent about 20 claims, but it really centers around the folding aspect uh, of a box, of a, of, a, of a box with a controlled environment. So, um, and, and actually, in terms of a product and a market, if the thing didn't fold, it wouldn't be a product. I mean, there just would be no interest in you know a big box that's warmed, uh, you know, to put in your kitchen. I mean, it's the folding that really makes it what it is. Um, so, any other questions about that? I know that's not much information. Is that his name? Russ Weinzimmer? Russ Weinzimmer. Yeah, he's got a network of people uh, that work for him. So you know, I don't know. I mean, one of the things I didn't like about it is every time I called, I end up talking to somebody else, and the other guy doesn't work here anymore. And you know, they all work out of their houses all over the country. But they're straight up people. They're not. Um, they're not out to get your money and just you know, churn and write patents. And then you know, that was my concern is is that okay? You can have. You can pay. Plunk down your money and get a patent, but does it really mean anything? And I'm not in a position to be able to look at a patent and say, is this you know a good patent, a bad patent? You know, have my own opinions, but what do they really mean? I was uh, relieved to you know sit down with Malcolm uh, and, and he reviewed the patent and you know he confirmed was really well written, um, and I think you got your money's worth. Um, and locating some
0: answer?
1: Yeah, they're out of Concord. I mean, Russ and you can find him instantly on as well as Malcolm Chisholm. I mean, you know, and their patent lawyers, you know, are just unbelievably expensive in terms of sort of the, the top drawer companies. Um, you know, and ones that I dealt with when I was in the semiconductor industry, they charged 600 bucks an hour. I mean, anything you want to do with these guys, you know, you just pay a fortune. The types of people that I was dealing with here, you can basically get a full-up utility patent written written and filed for about $7,000. I mean, I, I don't know... If, if there's a way to really do it a whole lot cheaper than that. there's a, There are provisional patents, and I don't know much about those. Um, they can be a, a, a valuable thing. We didn't do one. If you've got an idea and you want to be able to get it filed for a relatively amount of money, a small amount of money, a provisional patent could be good, but you have to, one of the things that you have to do is you have to make sure that the provisional patent is quite the same as what you intend to file because you can't go a year down the road and then change a bunch of things and expect to have it connect. But uh, these are all things that... Uh, uh, and Malcolm does. Uh, pretty sure he does free first uh, time meetings. You know, sit down, and talk to somebody for an hour, and it costs you virtually nothing to do that. Under the gas to go up there and see him. So uh, I, I highly recommend Malcolm if you're in a position to want to learn more about patents. Yeah. What's his what's specialty? What's his specialty? His specialty is actually uh, fuel cells. Yeah. Uh, but he does lots of other things. And he actually did my trademark. Uh, Register and gave me a whole education. Basically, gave me a lecture when I came in with some of my trademark ideas. He basically, you know, threw them all in the garbage and told me why they were bad ideas. And he's right. So uh, he's 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 a smart guy. Did you do all your drawing, or did they do your drawing? Um, So they took all of my CAD drawings, and then um, I think I have actually a picture here. But Russ Weinzimmer has, uh, as does um, Malcolm. Uh, a, uh, a person that does the patent drawings for them just you know because you want them to be done in that patent way right? so I didn't try to do that it's, it's, quite, it's kind of a subspecialty could you, could you spell Wienzler's name? Okay. is it E-I-N uh, it's W-E-I-N Z-I M-M-E-R you. okay So once we had the patent filed, um, it was time to you know, turn this thing loose somewhat and find out if I was completely out of my mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was at a point here where I was kind of embarrassed to tell anybody what I was doing because uh, I just usually got a lot of quizzical looks, and I knew how much money I had in time, and I vest- invested in this thing, and, and I really didn't have any data to say you know, whether or not it was a completely stupid idea. I knew I wanted one, and my mother-in-law wanted one, but outside of that, um, I didn't have any data so um, what I did, um, and interestingly, uh, when, I learned, when I went to IHA in, in March uh, and I learned some of the techniques that are used by the direct TV companies to evaluate market interests that actually went beyond what I did, um, turned out that you know the idea that I had was kind of, that I thought was kind of novel's been used by other people for, for years. Basically, what I did was that I built a website. It was kind of a mock sales website where I presented the idea to the public. Actually, a video that I couldn't show you that had the opening of this product, you know, I put in the center of a screen and I built a one-page website, just, you know, this was before WordPress. It's amazing how many things have come along. I mean, I basically built it uh, in Dreamweaver, but um, it, it basically explained the concept. Uh, I called the product the Easy Rise. Uh, sounds kind of dopey now, but um, and I put some information about it, and I put up a website. Um, and then I constructed an online survey that was linked to that using SurveyMilky. Um, and uh, and then in order to advertise this, I used um, Google AdWords, and I came up with a couple of text ads, um, which I actually only ended up running for three days. Um but then the other thing we did was uh, uh, my wife and I went out to uh, blogs for baking. And actually, the, the baking community is a really online connected community. There's a lot of websites where people look at recipes, talk about baking. And I basically went out and put uh, messages on those about, you know, hey, there's this product. Did you see this on this website? Um, and, um, and we were absolutely amazed. This was in, you know, uh, around Thanksgiving. 2008, I think. Um, and um, I, I turned off Google AdWords after three days because I was going to run out of money. I mean, it was it was pretty cheap. It was only 20 cents a click. Uh, but um, you know, it was, I was by by the middle of the day, I'd spent like $300. Um, and uh, over the period of time we ran it, I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was some number of weeks. We got uh, about 3,600 visits, a lot of surveys filled out. I mean, I talked to people in terms of, you know, uh, collecting data on the internet, and they just they said, you know, the percentages they got of people who actually went in and filled out all the surveys, wrote emails, made comments is, is enormous in terms of the percentage of people who were um, responding to this. And, and basically what I learned is, is that um, you know, there is a community, I didn't know, still don't know how big it is, but there's a very significant community of people who absolutely love the product. You know, and wrote in things like, I've been looking for one of these things for 20 years. You know, this is fantastic, sign me up, I wanna buy the first one. So not only did I get marketing confirmation, I got uh, an email list that finally, uh, you know, a product release I had about you know, over 2,000 emails of people who'd actually sent in their email and said, "Tell me when this thing is available and when to buy one." Um, so no so need for cold calls. No, no cold calls. Not not from you know, not from individuals. You know, and uh, this idea of using Google AdWords as a uh, as a test method is is uh, was very very effective. And what I learned uh, saying that these a lot of these direct response TV companies they they take a, uh, what I consider maybe be well not maybe. I mean, I think it's too far, but what they do is they don't, they basically put up a mock product sale uh, ad on TV. I mean, in my webpage, I said right there, by the way, this product doesn't exist yet. You know, Your interest may help bring this thing into life, but don't try to buy one because it doesn't exist yet. This is just a picture. On TV, they'll run an ad and say, call, "Operator, standing by. Call. And people will call and they'll take their credit card number and process it and then send them a letter, you know, in a couple of days saying, sorry, we can't fill the order, it's like out of stock or whatever. <laughs> you know, they basically completely but this is how they collect data and decide whether or not they're basically gonna run full a full app. You had a picture of your
0: product?
1: What's that? You had
0: a picture of your product Yeah,
1: I'm sorry, I had you know I, I had that um, on the survey,
0: I'm sorry. On survey.
1: Yeah, on the survey I had a picture, I had that it was only the CAD. It was only that crude CAD movie, basically. But it ran in the middle, and it opened up, and the flaps came up, and the top opened. And, uh, you know, so it really attracted attention. Yeah? If you gotten, do you think you'd have gotten away without using the Google AdWords, which is the online survey the website? I, I probably could have. I probably I did that first, you know, because I had no idea. And I, and I felt, you know, a little bit bad about, you know, going out to the blogs, you know, and blowing my horn saying, hey, has anybody seen this really cool product? Mm-hmm. But, but actually... It turned out to be incredibly valuable. I ended up posting on. Um, she knows this now. There's a there's a famous uh, uh, cookbook author named Rose Levy Barenbaum, If anybody bakes cakes or she's written some very very well-known cookbooks. And, and I posted on her blog, and she turned out you know to love the product. You know, wrote about it, um, and uh, you know has been a real promoter of it for me. Uh, so it really ended up making some connections for me. And I didn't do anything you know illicit. Uh, and I tried to be polite about it. Um, but at the end of the day, I probably got more traffic out of that as it started you know, bouncing around through word of mouth than I did off of the end words. Yeah? You just so I'm not trailing too far behind. This product does exist now. You bet. Okay. You bet. <laughs> I just didn't bring it with me. It's a premium on WAMC, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I ran ads on WAMC for about six months through the winter. Somebody heard it besides me. No, actually, a lot of people did. Um, I'm not sure there was much of a return on that investment, but I felt good. Well, once um, they
0: you know. got to pronounce it correctly, and have some comprehension kind of, of what they were talking about, it got better. Yeah. Before that, I was like, "What?" You know, Brad Taylor made this bread
1: thing. Oh yeah, that's right. Alan Shartok had a lot of fun with it during their um, their. You gotta their own. have fun with it. Okay. So, um, all right. So, moving ahead here, uh, a business plan. I spent uh, a whole summer working on a business plan. Um, and it was very, very worthwhile exercise uh, for a number of different reasons. First, it was worthwhile because it made me really sit down and think about all the hard things that I needed to think about that I'd sort of glossed over otherwise. I mean, you can go out anywhere and get you know a book on how to write a business plan and it's going to have, uh, a table of contents and say, you know, this is what I'll be in your business plan. And there's some things that you look at and say, oh, I know about that, I know about that, I know about that. But it's all those things in between that you just really had not thought about and don't want to think about because they're too hard to figure out. And when you sit down and make yourself go through all that, it's very, very educational. And you have to do it um, your uh, yourself first because you're going to end up, you know, in front of somebody or people or in public... Um, and people are going to ask you questions and you know, you you hope that you thought about it first. Um, it um, Obviously when I was going out and looking for money, a business plan was uh, important. Um, in the different venues that I ended up going to and where I ended up finding money, it, it was important for different reasons. I would say that I've, I've got three major investors in the company now besides myself, and two of them I'm pretty sure never read the business plan. I mean, they read the executive summary, and then they flipped through and looked at the pictures. Um, but they saw that I wrote it, and boy, there was a lot of stuff down there. And that, in and of itself, was really, really important. Um, and, uh, and they liked the fact you know, that I didn't you know, paint a real rosy picture. You know? I didn't underestimate how much it was going to cost. I probably overestimated it. I didn't underestimate how long it was going to take. My, my, my uh, sales projections weren't all hockey sticks. Right. It's really easy to write a business plan like that, and it's just it's not worth the thing. People who have looked at business plans have seen a hundred like that, and you know, why is it going to be any different? And investors don't like it when you come to the well twice. If you only ever come once. Yeah. 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 Better to. And so you know, and I I ended up dealing with people who you know are quite sophisticated. You know, um, and one of the things they appreciated the most was was, was honesty, and and not overestimating. Um, so, I didn't want to spend a whole lot more time talking about that here, other than the fact that I think that this is a painful but extremely important thing to do and, you know, my business plan didn't turn out to be horrendous, I think it was about 30 pages, uh, but, you know, it went through, you know, the details of, you know, the concept uh, and the market and evaluating the customers and looking at the competition, you know, and all the stuff that you would, you would think ought to be there. Uh, it's important to do. you want it all by yourself? What's that? own it all by yourself? Or? Yeah. What well, do I own it? Um, well let's see. I so I two own the partners. patent. You have two partners? I own the patent and I formed an LLC. Um, when I took the company from a sole proprietorship and basically folded into an LLC when I brought on investors and I basically uh, brought them in as partners and and so uh, they're all members is what it's right. called in them and, and so they have a percentage ownership. I own the patent and the patent is um, licensed to the LLC. Uh, of course, the banks got their clause in it too, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But, uh, but yeah, so um, so I'm the majority holder in it. But you know, I gave people a good stake. You know, people really stick their neck out to help you out. Um, you know. I, kind of off topic, but when, you there's know, so much in the news about you know corporations and what corporations are doing these days and whether corporations work for the shareholders or they work for the employees. But, but when you're a small company and you're doing the sort of thing that I have and you go out and you have people that basically have bet a significant amount of money on you as an individual, you really feel that you know you owe it to have a return to your shareholders basically because they made, they made it possible for me to get here and they took a big risk, <coughs> not just on the product, but really they invested in me. And the product. I mean, they're kind of inseparable. Um, so just to talk a little bit more about that. I mean, leveraging leveraging your own assets, if you have any, is important. You know, to do because it's the cheapest money you'll ever find if it's yours. Um, and uh, you know, there are multiple ways. I you know, I went a long way on credit cards uh, to get things going initially. Um, it was a gamble, but it, it turned out to pay off, and it was, you know, in retrospect, it's very cheap money because, you know, I paid the interest, but I kept I kept the equity. And uh, and the other thing, it, it you know, leveraging your own assets shows people that you believe in what you're doing, and if you believe in what you're doing, they're more likely to believe in what you're doing. You know, going out to somebody and saying, you know, I want to use your money to build this company because I'm not... Willing to spend my own money because I'm not, I mean, obviously not going to say that, but essentially saying to somebody, I'm not willing to risk my own money because I'm not sure it's going to work out, but I'd like to risk your money. Would you give me some? You know, I'm not going to get you very far. Um, You know, I went and talked to, uh, and I I should say I have had quite a bit of experience dealing with professional money, you know, in companies, startup companies that weren't mine, uh, but, um, you know, Dealing with venture capitalists and other kinds of things in, in when I was in the semiconductor industry. It's a real different when you're sitting there at the table and it's all you, you know, and it's your idea uh, rather than the other guy. Um, I did talk to some professional money, and I, you know, it's really expensive and they want a lot. And uh, you know, I might be able to go that route, but basically there, you know, when you're a professional investor and you're going to invest in 50 things and 45 of them are going to fail, the five maybe that work out, they gotta hit big. Mm -hmm. So they wanna invest a lot and they want a big return. And they're not interested in incremental growth, they're not interested in small investments. You know, they wanna put a million bucks and get back 50 million. Um, And uh, you know, if they're gonna do that sort of thing, you're gonna end up with a very small stake. There's a bump in the road and the next thing you know, you know, you're not there anymore. I mean, I saw it happen so many times in my professional career in semiconductors, and I just, I just absolutely didn't want to go that way. I and mean, then there's a different sort of thing with my product. I wanted to take it in the way that I wanted it to go, so I, I, I didn't go down the road with any of that professional money. I ended up working with private angels, and not pro- they're also professional angels. You know, there's the sort of the, 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 uh, the venture capitalist sort and the, the professional angel groups that are also, I mean, they're more like professional sharks, really. I don't think angels applies <laughs> to a lot of these guys. Um, but the people that I work with really are angels. They're patient, uh, they believe in the product, and they believe in me. And I basically found them through a network of, of folks that you know. I mean, so they sort of knew me personally, and we worked together extremely well. Um, you know, Even if I'd had the ability, I mean, I, personal story on the side, I, I worked on this thing. The company that I was working for went bust at the beginning of the financial crisis. So my first two years of working on this thing basically didn't have a job. So my my initial idea that I was gonna fund the thing mostly myself kind of fell to the wayside, but now I realize that even if I had had the capability to do it myself, I'm much better off with some investors. I mean, so what that I gave up some equity in the company. Um, It's still the majority of it's mine. We're all gonna do okay. And you know, other people can bring a lot of things to the party. And one of the things that these folks have brought in in an intangible way is uh, you know being able to deal with banks, you know, because having them being able to go to a bank and saying these folks are my investors, you know, instantly I have my credibility goes up by an order of magnitude because these people invested in you, and you know, a couple of you know two of the people actually work with the bank, they're significant, um, you know, clients of the bank, uh, and so I've had a really good ability to deal with the banks. Uh, which I've done. Basically, I gave up some equity in the company to develop the product, but when it came to going into manufacturing and building inventory, I wasn't going to give up any equity to build inventory, and I've used debt to be able to do that, and the banks have been very, very good working with me. You, um, know, we, did you yeah. brought in some investors with you to meet with some banking people to get additional funds. Well, yeah, I didn't actually have to bring them into the room. I just They were name notes on the application form. And, you know, when, when, my, when my loan application went to the president of the bank, and basically and he looked at the people who were the co-investors, he signed the document, and I bet you anything if they weren't there and it was just me. I mean, even if they had my patent and a house and they had my firstborn child, they wouldn't have done it. You know, so it turned out to be extremely important. Um, The Small Business Association, you know, uh, could have been a good thing. I mean, they actually have some really neat programs for companies starting businesses. You may have talked about that here. They actually wouldn't even talk to me because what I'm doing, you know, the evil thing, you know, manufacturing a product overseas and importing it, um, you know, is something that they absolutely wouldn't get involved with. So don't mind the fact that, you know, 80% of the money that basically like collecting revenues goes to, you know, entities in the United States. Uh, it's, it's politically, you know, incorrect. So, did
0: you have to purchase your tooling, or is it built into the price?
1: Um, wonderful leading question. So, um, both. Um, so, uh, developing the product. Okay, so I, I was able to s- secure some investment. Um, I, I'll just. T- You know, there's a huge branch in the road uh, when you're working on an invention, when you get to the point of, say, what am I going to do with this thing? How is it going to ever get made? Am I going to go find a company to license it from me and try to sell it to a company and have them make it, or I'm going to do it myself? Um, And um, I approached the licensing uh, option, you know, with vigor and pursued that for, you know, the better part of a year. So I pitched idea to every major appliance company uh, in the United States and some in Europe. And uh, I met a lot of people, and um, I got a lot of interest, but I didn't get a deal. Um, and with a couple of the companies, one in particular that I was most interested in working with, they actually never said no, they just wouldn't say yes, and they kept dragging their feet and dragging their feet until I just basically gave up. Um, but. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, it the, sort of the, the block and tackle people in the company uh, companies, several of them were extremely interested in the product. The product managers, the people who would actually take it to market, thought it was great. But basically, the senior executives would never sign off. And it's it's always a question of risk reward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're dealing with large companies. The if you work in a large company, and you guys probably already know this, reward for bringing a new product in like this. Personally, is really small. I mean, uh, an attaboy, a pat on the back. The, the penalty, if you brought a product like this in and it flopped, is really severe. So people just play it safe. So who's going to stick their neck out for something like this? What they are looking for, most of the companies I talk to, you know, in terms of the senior people, they wanted a product like uh, the uh, you know these single-serve coffee makers, the, um, what am I trying to not the... Uh, you know they're looking for the next coffee maker that they can sell five million of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a niche product that you know just didn't didn't appeal to the the, the bean counters at the upper levels in the companies. But I met some really good people, and through that process, um, probably the singular thing that happened to me that was most important to bring this product to market is I met a guy who worked for a major appliance company. I actually, had 30 years' experience that I ended up hiring like six months after we met at a meeting in their company. Had, had, declined to go forward with the product. I hired him as a consultant. Mm -hmm. Um, That was the most important decision I ever made, the best thing I ever did, because I think without that, I never would have made it.
0: Uh, In terms of, going back to the
1: funding, uh, apparently you get some pretty good angels still guiding you along in terms of financing. Yeah. Uh, Is there a possibility of uh, getting financing through, um, I should I say, alliances with uh, other
0: manufacturers or makers. I mean, you said you had a hard time going to some clients makers, but had there
1: been other companies that would have been interested in sort of funding along with as well. Well I can't see that there can't say that there wouldn't have been, but I never found any. Okay. I never found any. Um, you know I found a lot of things among manufacturers that shocked me um, mm-hmm. uh, that that basically made this all possible that I want to tell you about. Um, and I found them because of this consultant I hired. That, that changed my entire approach to how this thing was going to be manufactured. Um, so, you know, I came in, I, in my professional career, I ended up with a pretty negative view of consultants because I worked in a lot of companies. We hired a lot of consultants, and they just sucked money and, and knowledge out of the company. you pay them an enormous amount of money. they do some work, and then they leave, mm-hmm. you know, and all the knowledge left with them. But, but in this particular case, me hiring the right consultants, I... I, I I almost hired some of the wrong consultants to do some things like help me with, you know, intricate aspects of how to do the mechanical design of the plastic injection. Uh, that would have cost me a lot of money. I didn't hire them, and that was good because I would have just thrown my money away. But understanding the industry that you're trying to get into, I mean, if, because I basically decided if this, I'd invested so much in this product, I wasn't going to swing a license deal. I wasn't going to let the thing go. I actually, you know, based on my knowledge of. Of industry and manufacturing, and I mean, I said it was in the semiconductor industry. It's kind of misleading. I was in what's called the semiconductor manufacturing industry. I actually worked for the companies that make the machines, and I actually worked for companies that make the parts for the machines. So I have a lot of experience with manufacturing different kinds of parts. So I felt like this is some place I could go. Um, but actually, as it turned out, that wasn't really very important. Um, and, um, and 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 the reason is is what the The singular thing that I learned that was most amazing to me is is that the product development in this particular industry is actually almost entirely done by companies other than the appliance companies that you think that you know, right? So KitchenAid, Cuisinart, Black & Decker, they don't design their products, really. They are wholesalers. And actually, my company now, Berkshire Innovations, is a wholesaler. my products are designed by a company in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. There's not a single drawing from my product that has my company's name on it. And actually, that turns out to be critically important because there's not an insurance company in the United States that would insure me for product liability if I had my name on the drawing. Okay, so if somebody burns their kitchen down with my product, um, the product is actually designed by a company in Hong Kong. If somebody sticks their hand into a Cuisinart blender and chops off their finger, the company that designed the blender isn't Cuisinart, they're a wholesale. Mm. Um, so there, there is an incredible uh, body of knowledge and expertise in home appliance design in particular. I mean this is not true for every single industry, but in that particular industry, tens and tens of years ago the center of gravity of of the knowledge about that industry moved to southern China primarily for a lot of different reasons that, you know, don't really have anything to do with me. Um, I did spend a year or more trying to figure out how to build this in the United States. You know, I want to build this, you know, I live in Berkshire County north of Pittsfield. It's it's the birthplace of injection molding. You know, um, I thought, gee, I ought to be able to build an injection molded product here. And I probably could have if I'd been willing to invest a million dollars in the development of the product, I never could have afforded it. And if I had, trying to pay back the cost and the price, I mean, it just economically mm-hmm. would make no sense at all. Mm-hmm. And then the other problem, of course, is that it's not just manufacturing the product. Any product has got, you know, sort of the top-level manufacturer, then you've got your sub-suppliers, and then the sub-sub-suppliers. It's a whole network, you know, just like the car industry. You know, there's hundreds, thousands of companies that contribute to that manufacturing effort. You know, all that expertise for home appliances it's not really here, it's there. So you just, I, I was trying to swim against the tide. I, you, know, I, I, you know, as I was saying, I, I, I felt, in some ways I felt like I wasted a year of effort trying to figure out how to do that here, working on the details of how am I going to design, you know, the specific molds for all of these parts, you know. And then what I realized is that, you know, my, essentially my competitors or you might, or, or, or companies are doing the same sort of thing. Sometimes are literally drawing pictures on a napkin and sending them to, you know, their manufacturing partner in China. And that's where the design is done. And you were asking about, you know, tooling costs is all wrapped up. So, so basically what I'm saying is I didn't really spend a single penny on engineering development costs. So, I mean, in my business, in years and years of high technology companies, you know, when we go out and make products, whatever, we, we have a yeah, big budget for one-time engineering costs, right? You know, you've you got engineers... I mean, I essentially had for this product help with a team of, I don't know, 10, 15 engineers that worked for a year on this product. You know, doing the design, um, you know, all the detailed drawings, the mold drawings, you know, revisions on the mold. I think, you know, some of the molds, um, I'll have some pictures as we go through. You know, some of the mold, this product is not small. Okay, they're injection molded parts that are this large. Okay, they're challenging. Uh, They're polypropylene in order to keep the high, you know, they warp. Uh, So we not only have to have injection molds, you know, that are this big, you know, weigh, I don't know, a couple of tons, you know, lifted up by cranes to put in machines. We have to have cooling molds that they can be put into so that when they come out of the injection mold, they go in there and they can cool down these molds. Um, Some of the big molds, I think we had to rework eight or nine times. I mean, that means take them, put them on a crane on the back of a truck, because there's not a mold shop in the injection pl- in the injection factory. Drive them, you know, an hour, unload them, TIG weld material back in, put them in the C-, C machine, you know, machine them again to take off, you know, a tenth of a millimeter because some snap part is not fitting right. I mean, I think some of you have been involved. You know, the level of detail that you have to go through in every single step of the process is just excruciating. And I didn't, you know, if I tried to do that in the U.S. where I was paying for every rework and paying for every, it just would it, I could never have gotten there. But it was basically all rolled into the cost, you know, with these manufacturers. Partly because the China manufacturing company in this kind of business is absolutely suffering. Um, at least 25% of the manufacturing companies that make these kinds of products went out of business in our economic downturn. I mean, I, knowing what I know about manufacturing China. I mean, it's not very evenly reported in terms of you know what you hear in the day-to-day news about manufacturing China. It's more like you know evil manufacturing in China, and you know we're losing all of our manufacturing jobs. Um, well, you know, okay, part certainly partly true, but you know, there, there there's really good people over there, really good at what they do, um, and uh, and. You know, they're totally dependent on demand in the US you know, to be able to keep their jobs and keep their companies afloat in the service When demand went down here for products, you know, it just killed a lot of people over there. So you're able to negotiate much sweeter deals in terms of um, you know, what you can do um, to get products developed and, and manufactured. But, but, so the other thing that I was able to do with the consultant that I hired was to um, basically gave me six, six different firms. <coughs> That he'd dealt with in the past. That I interviewed first, you know, via email, and you know, talking to people on the phone. Then went over and, and, and met uh, two kind of two and a half of the top contenders uh, before I chose a manufacturing partner. I ended up uh, working with a company that's actually based in Hong Kong. Uh, the two partners that own that I found out are actually two young guys that grew up in Toronto. I mean, they're they're born in Hong Kong, but you know they're. They, they grew up in Toronto, so really easy to communicate with. They have a joint venture in China um, that uh, where they actually have their factory. So there's just a whole variety of companies over there. So trying to deal with a pure Chinese company would be extremely difficult by comparison to what I was able to do. Um, but we structured a deal that basically took the tooling and the development costs rolled everything into one package, sort of half paid up front, half amortized over the product that I buy, you know, essentially over the first year, um, and that's the way that I was able to, to, to structure the situation to be able to get the product designed and to market. Yeah?
0: What percentage of the product from China that you got, that they made for you was of the highest quality, did you have any returns, or how did that whole scenario work for
1: you? Um, so, I've had uh, one problem with product so far. I mean we've been manufacturing now for about a year so and uh, so kind of the top level it was electrical problem so the, the company that I deal with is really in, in an injection molding expert company and metal stamping and assembly. So they used to do everything but they outsourced their, their their mold making and they outsourced their PC board design and assembly and I ended up having a problem with the PC board. So, we went through several uh, levels of, proto- of prototypes and then pilot runs, and everything was looking good. And then when the first production lot came through, uh, basically the power supplies on some machines were burning out. And it turned out that there was a, a, tri- a, a chip called a triac on a board that was—it it, should have—it was rated high enough, but and it was made by Philips. I mean, you know, this was some cheap part, uh, but it, it was—it was failing when it shouldn't be failing. So bad lot. I don't know what happened. So. We got into a big arm wrestling match about that because it turns out that in the... I mean, I came from a business that looks at three sigma quality levels. I mean, basically one part out of a million, you know, is allowed to be bad. In in this kind of a business, when you're selling... I mean, I'm not, but in this business, you sell toaster ovens for $35 at Walmart. Believe me, they're not working on three sigma. I mean, they think, like, 5% is kind of okay in terms of failure rate. I mean, there's, so there are huge differences in terms of perception of quality levels in dealing with Chinese manufacturing versus, you know, that you go on and on about. Um, Since you're working with line voltage, right? Yeah. Do you have to get UL approved? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And was that a process or uh, yeah Yes, so I'll tell you about that. So just to wrap up the thing of the quality problem. So it's not like they switched parts on me. We used the same part. Uh, but, you know, the tolerance of the parts that came from the PC board manufacturer was, was failing. The PC board guys wouldn't own up to it. Um, and uh, so I ended up settling, uh, and, and my percentage rates of failure weren't 5%. I mean, so they didn't trigger anything in my contract. They were running about 2% to 2.5%. But I'm a small company, and my reputation is everything. I want every single product to work. Mm-hmm. So um, I settled with them for about half the cost of a rework, and I spent my own money, and I reworked every product that I had here in the U.S., for about twenty-five percent of the manufacturing cost of the product. You know, and it was really painful, uh, but it was the right thing to do because um, you know, you go out and you Google my product name right now and look at product reviews, and you see, you know, they're right at the top. And that, you know, it, it could have killed me. But 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 it is absolutely true, and I, I talked to the, the, the guy who runs the company about this problem, is, is that he said every single day somebody comes and bangs on his door and says, you know, I'll sell you this part which is a knockoff of this other part and you could put it in this product you're building and, and I'll sell it to you for you know half the price of the real one that you're buying <laughs> and uh, so you know the even though I've had some good experiences the thing to take away about manufacturing China is is you cannot trust anybody and if you anything can be copied and stolen from you it will be I mean that's the attitude they have to take and if it doesn't happen to you you're really lucky
0: and how do you know that that's not exactly what they're doing. They're showing
1: you one thing and giving you another. Um, I can't know it completely. Um, like, you know, my product uses a high-quality uh, uh, glass-filled polypropylene resin from Korea. They could buy some cheap local stuff, and um, and I wouldn't really know it. But the product would probably start warping. You know. Um, and so, you know, you have to have a certain level of trust because you can't know that every chip on every board is right. I mean, not to digress too much, but there's an appliance company that's got a major lawsuit against them here in the U.S. because they just started burning somebody's kitchen down. And the reason it happened is, is that, you know, they were supposed to have a 16-gauge copper wire, you know, to plug the thing in. But one of the suppliers, in order to save money, was like shaving 2% off of the amount of copper in the copper wires, uh, and so the thing got too hot and it burned up. I mean, who's going to figure that out? You know, you just can't. So there are, there are dangers. Could you have told the manufacturer in China that I'd rather have another PC manufacturer the one want to use? Can I have that? Do you have that option? You know, we talked about everything. Uh, we talked about uh, you know using a different supplier, you know, and if I design a new product with them, I probably will insist that we not use that PCB supplier. And they, you know, I saw. Um, of course, I only saw this through their eyes, so you know, I have to wonder how much was the guy being straight with me. But I think they really did duke it out, and you know, it's a company they've worked with for thirty years, and. Um, you know, it, it got to be a real ugly situation. So I probably wouldn't have been successful if I pushed them to do that. Besides, we already had all this stock. What are you going to do? I mean, at one point, they were going to actually ship it all back to China and fix it themselves. And they would have done that. Actually put it on a boat and sail it over there and fix it and send it back. But I couldn't afford to do that because what am I going to sell? It would be gone for, you know, four months. Right. So um, in, in terms of copying and using my tooling, okay, so I own the tooling. Uh, I agree to leave it at this, one of the things this company suffers from is is that because they're really good at development, a lot of people basically go there, have products develop it, get the tooling, and then basically take it somewhere else and have the stuff made cheaper. Because they're not the cheapest around, I mean, in terms of my piece part price, they're not the cheapest around. And part of the reason is because they do a lot of upfront work in development. So I agreed to leave the product tooling there for three years as long as they didn't breach the contract or raise the price too much and let them build it, but I do own the tooling, and they are not supposed to build anything on it except for me. Um, uh, you know, they could make more tooling equivalent and then build parts and sell them out the back door, or they could make parts on my tooling, and I would never know, except for the fact that my product is so unique that if it showed up anywhere in the world, uh, you know, I would know it instantly. Um, so basically that's not happening but well, it could, could you how would you know that? what's that? how would you know that? Um, it's, it's a pretty I mean in the internet world uh, I, I wouldn't say I absolutely would know but I would probably find out I mean I get communications every day from pretty much uh, four corners of the world of people who are looking to buy my product I mean from, from Zambia from Australia from Malaysia I mean just yeah. everywhere okay if, if it existed in some other form I would probably find out you know if, if my, my my product fails um, I mean actually we, you know one of the we were we, combing the internet we found one of my products that failed on, my wife found it on a Sunday night on a bulletin board you know a bread baker's I have this product and the thing you know won't heat up so I mean I was actually able to contact the person and send them a new product I FedExed them one overnight uh, from what I read on her blog, before she ever called the company and said she had a problem, I had one at her doorstep the next day. So she wrote about that saying, this is the best customer support in the world. I didn't even call the company, and they sent me a, a replacement <laughs> <company>. <laughs> So uh, I think I would find out. It's amazing. You know, because it's a unique product in a, in a small you say city. You you don't have international pass except for Western Europe. Yeah, so we file for patents in the European Patent Mm -hmm. Office, all right? Because you can now file, you know, in the EU, you can file centrally Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when you file, but now when you get a patent, you still have to go to this country, go to that country. There's not like an EU patent. There's just a central place to get started. Um, And so, you know, so I've sort of predated... You know, it's like here, once you file, you're you're protected back to the date of filing. We haven't actually gone the final step yet, but I probably will just, you know, get Germany and the UK and leave it at that. So, you know, it it would just be phenomenally expensive. everywhere. But if you're doing well in all these other countries, what you care if someone else is copying you somebody else? You don't have time to count on your money, so... You know, it's not an iPad, so Mm -hmm. it's got a limited market. You know the people that you know. The strategy with this whole product is is that it's it's a niche product. It appeals to a certain community. It's a community of people that have to be really passionate about what they do. It's it, it sells for 148 bucks, so it's not a cheap appliance. The margins are a little bit higher, but we're not going to do you know huge volumes. We're not going to sell. You know, Black and Decker toaster ovens. There's a factory in China it makes 10,000 a day. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a city. Alright, so if I sell ten thousand in a year, I'm enormously happy. So, you know, who else is gonna invest all the time and effort to sort of re engineer my product? It's and that's one of the reasons I, you know, I could do this. How, there's not a lot of guys that start appliance companies. You know, my consultant told me in thirty five years he never met anybody who actually succeeded in doing what I was doing. I mean they all they had there were a lot of people that try, but basically they could never get the money, never never get over the hump. So and the, and the reason I think I was able to is because I, I, I picked a narrow target. I mean, there are success stories. You heard of the Magic Bullet, you know, the, the blender? Oh, yeah, bullet. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are people that have, you know, that was a license deal, though. Those people didn't, like, build their own blender. They had a really cool marketing concept, really, more than anything. A blender, you turn upside down and drink out of the cup. I mean, it, it, it didn't really do anything radically different, but, you know, it's kind of rare. So we feel that, you know, we're kind of protected from that standpoint. Ever consider using in China a third party quality company? Yes. Uh, Well, to a certain extent, I mean, and I'll tell you exactly what I mean. Uh, I I use an inspection company, okay? Uh, In terms of quality, I pretty much have to rely on the quality effort that's inside my manufacturer for their quality control. I mean, and uh, that's a whole other discussion about quality control in manufacturing China. It's not, it's like, it's like. In the Dark Ages, I mean, it's like build a whole product and get it and reassemble it and look at it and oh, it doesn't work. You know, inline process controls, statistical process. You know, at some level, I mean, maybe where they build Apple computers, yes, but in the general world of manufacturing for home appliances, no. they, And you know, I don't think they even understand. Uh, I will say a couple other things. I uh, I want to stay on track. here. Industrial design, okay, ID. What does your product look like? I mean it's a very visual world. I showed you my prototype, you know, it's a functional prototype, but it's pretty ugly. And I mean actually the guys in China tell me now that, you know, when my first trip I came over then I told them about this product, I took the thing out, showed it to them, and they smiled and thought, God, that's an ugly looking product. (laughs) So and they were so happy that you know I went through and I spent money on industrial design. But basically what that means is a this this was sort of my renderings of my box, all right, that I did in the Libra, okay? And this is what it looked like, you know, after a month with an industrial designer. Okay, it's a beautiful product. And I sell this product to some people because they just think it's gorgeous. Um, so I ended up hiring an industrial designer in, in China. Um, you know, there are excellent industrial designers here, but there's two reasons I hired a guy in China. Uh, primarily, one is is that he worked really closely with my manufacturer, and, you know, your industrial designer and the people designing the product really have to go hand in hand. So it would have been tough to do that overseas. And the other thing is, is that he actually did rapid prototyping, all in his same shop. So we designed a product collaboratively that looked like this. Whoops. And then uh, I worked with him, and he built first pr- pr- uh, prototypes. And these are uh, rapid prototyping CNC milled parts out of solid blocks of ABS and solid blocks. solid blocks of ABS. I mean, they put these things on a mill and ran them for a week, I guess. I don't know. I mean, they're very intricate parts with all the detailed pieces for the buttons and the hinges and the latches and everything. Um, and it cost me $2,500. I mean, if, if I could have found somebody to do that in this country, it would have cost 30000 I, I don't even know. I mean, just some astronomical. Number. I mean, so is the development cost difference between trying to do this here, hire consultants, do it myself, make. I mean, it just it just would not have. There's no way I could have raised enough money to develop this product here. So we built this product, um, and then you know, we went basically from this, you know, to a pilot run. So and I went over. I made four trips to Japan, you know, between the development, you know, signing these guys. My first trip, and then three additional trips. And I was over there for the pilot run, where they basically set up a small line uh, with some of their assembly people and uh, the engineers, and basically learned how to build the product. Um, okay, and this photo was taken in Hong Kong. This is actually in southern China, uh, where their plant is. Okay. So, uh, and this is you know, there's thousands of uh, factories that look like this. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's basically essentially outdoors is in a huge. Warehouse essentially a concrete warehouse no climate control. Um, they do have, these people build sonic uh, like ultrasonic toothbrushes so they have a clean room area that's inside. But most of their products and you go in here and you walk in, down these different lines and you see Black and Decker, Cuisinart, you know I mean all the companies that you know. They're building these things um, uh, waffle irons um, and. Uh, you know, uh, mostly young women working there. Most of them come down. You know, from the rural north. You know, they grew up on farms and whatever. They come here. They uh, work as much as they can uh, to get as much money for Chinese New Year's when they go back home. Um, and they live in dormitories. You know, they work uh, six six days a week. They work, um, but you know, it's it's just you know. You hear a lot of stories about what manufacturing is like in China sweatshops. You know, the people are, you know, driven to work all this overtime. It's, factories are different. This is a well-run place. People really, they want to work as much as they can to make as much money as they can to take it home to their families. And they're really very good at what they do. I mean, I, I, I learned this when I basically, I was having my product reworked in California. I was trying to find a company that could disassemble my product, change a chip on a PC board, and reassemble the product. And I went to, you know, there's, you can't go to an appliance manufacturing company in Southern California because there aren't any. So I found, you know, PC board uh, remanufacturing companies that fix PC boards. But sitting there watching the guys try to take the product apart, you know, and undo the screws and, and then put it back together, and they were all fumble fingers, you know, and they were going to charge me three times as much to do it because it took them so long to take the thing apart and put it back together. And I see these people over here, they're really very skilled at what they do, very, very nimble. Um, but it's not automated. I mean, other than automating screwdrivers, that's basically it. You know, you got lots of people applied to these things. And so products that aren't built in volume or aren't built in such a way as they can be automated with machines, you know, that involve a lot of physical uh, manual labor, I mean, these are the kinds of products that, you know, that's why they went to low-cost labor areas in the first place. You know, But you know, the amount of money, when somebody buys my product, the amount of money that goes back that this company or these people is very small uh, as a percentage. The, the distribution cost and what it actually costs to get a product from that country to this country out in stores, have it marketed, do the advertising, have people sell it, have people to support it, that's where all the money goes. So, you know, when I hear people say, I'm not buying this product made in China, I'm not sending my money to China. I mean, it's really, I'm not, I'm not if you're spending a dollar, you're spending, you're sending pennies to China, you're really sending most of it right here. Uh, absolutely. And people just don't understand, I don't blame blame them. It's not something that, you know, mm-hmm. is general knowledge, but I mean that's really the way it works. And when you take a product to market and you see what it costs to go and distribute it, when it costs to advertise it, what it costs in terms of margins, the margins that the department stores are taking to take your product. I mean, my distributors made more money on my product than I do. A lot more. It's just the way the system is set up. And you know these guys are at the feeding at the food chain. I mean, they're, they're way at the bottom. So we did a pilot run. You know, they learned how to build a product. We built 50. Um, and uh, we actually did three pilot runs, actually. We were really trying to jam through things. Here's, here's a picture of uh, Fee, who's the project manager on this, standing next to one of my molds here. That's the mold for the base piece. A um, you know, big so, mold of a small person? Both. <laughs> but you know it's it's you know and there's uh, I don't know what I got thir- 14 molds I think for this product. Wow. So you know when they th- and, and when they load the thing up to run, you know it's it's basically the good part of a day to get the molds in the machine. Mm-hmm. Then you start the machines up. They have to warm up. You know for the first 150 parts, they just throw away as they come out until the machine really gets running. I mean it's a really really big deal to get all this going. Uh, so that's why you have to build a lot time. So, um, so I'll talk a little bit about sort of, you know, the the other world that I had to go into. Um, the um, so, Sort of the the huge branch points in this whole process were, you know, developing to the point where I'm going to license it, I'm going to build it myself. Okay, I'm going to build it myself. Okay, then I build it myself. Am I going to get distributors to sell it for me or I'm going to sell it myself? And so those are kind of like the so it seems like I always took the hardest road, uh, and, and partly, partly it's because of the product, what it is. It's just a brand new product. Most people don't understand it. Um, many of the retailers that I deal with, you know, don't understand it or don't really believe in it. Um, you know, and, and I myself, like I said, there was a period of time where I was sort of afraid to tell anybody what I was working on. It felt like a goof, you know, working on this product because people thought it was kind of nuts. Um, but also the timing. I mean, this it was supposed to come out earlier in the year. I actually introduced it just about October of 2011, All right, October 2011, any store or any distributor, you know, had their stock in place, you know, four or five months earlier, made their decisions nine months earlier. You know, I was totally on my own, but, you know, uh, I had product made and what I'm going to do, so I basically, was gone, I'm going to sell it myself. So, uh, we, um, I used, a, there's a great uh, advertising uh, marketing company in Lenox, Massachusetts, it's called Winstanley Partners, they had some guys out of New York, super folks, uh, they're not, well they are actually pretty cheap, they're not, maybe not cheap for Berkshire County, but cheap for New York, and they're really good, and they've done, you know, they, they have national councillor Spaulding, Spalding, they do uh, uh, Remington, I think, uh, or Smith & Wesson, you know, they've had their accounts. so they, they do some big stuff, but they also do small things. And I took a big chunk of money, and I said, "You know, help me roll this thing out." You know, I had some goofy websites that I made myself, but they built me a, a top-of-the-line website, really nice design. Uh, we brought in, um, um, let's see how we got to go. Yeah, we brought in, uh, you know, a photographer, you know, to make a slew of, of professional photographs. Um, and invested a, you know, a fair amount of money, and certainly a lot of money from my point of view, maybe not from theirs, in, in setting up to do this thing. Um, I uh, set up a web store on my own site. I use a hosted uh, web store with a company called UltraCart. Uh, they're a mid-level uh, company, not one of the really big ones, but really responsive, good people to work with. And so my whole web, my whole web store is hosted on their site and I got a gateway to be able to take credit cards and the PayPal accounts and all that stuff. So basically got all the commerce going. Yeah. The, uh, you landings, so basically some consumer products is that their- Yes. Yeah, I mean they do yeah, they do some medical things and that sort of thing, but yeah, but and actually do more services uh, these days. Uh, because there just aren't that many consumer product opportunities in Berkshire County, you know, or when they could draw in. So they have some of these what they might kind of legacy accounts that they started but they loved working on my, on my product because it was sort of one of the most recent consumer products that they've done recently, something you could actually touch and feel rather than just a service. Right. Um, uh, so we set, all, we set up that system up. You know, I, I set up a storefront on Amazon, and we launched the thing um, in, you know, just in the beginning of October. And I had my mailing list, uh, which we sent out an email blast to the mailing list that gave me an initial shot uh, of, of product sales. Um, and we did pretty well. We did we did quite well. I mean, in terms of the in terms of things that going wrong and problems that I had. I mean, I had some quality issues, you know, with some of the first products I was scrambling with. Uh, I didn't even make a slide here. I, I could. I, I set up. You know, obviously, I you know I didn't bring all this product to my house and ship it out of my garage. Um, so I had a uh, you know distribution warehouse fulfillment warehouses that I had to set up. And actually, even set them up with a customer call center. Boy, was that a mistake. Um, so, uh, you know, I learned some hard lessons there about, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, I, I actually had to change my fulfillment warehouse two weeks before Christmas, which was just an unbelievable nightmare. But, you know, they were killing me, you know, with their mistakes. Uh, so there are good companies and bad companies. Uh, I guess I just didn't do my homework well enough, um, you know uh partly got involved with a fulfillment company that just was the wrong fit for me. They did some things well, they just didn't do what I wanted to do very well. And uh, they ended up getting a huge contract about a, week, about a month before I launched my product, which meant that I had the A team and then suddenly launched my product with the C team. And my customer call center got outsourced twice uh, to a company that absolutely knew nothing about it. And when I sat down and listened to the call tapes of people calling in and what was happening on the telephone, I mean... My wife was down there with me, told me I looked like, you know, i died. You know, I mean, I was just, I just, I I was almost laying on the floor. I was so uh, devastated I couldn't even yell at it. So, uh, and actually she and I took the tapes and called every single person that had called in that had an issue. And we ended up selling a lot of products. Although I had talked to some of the people for 45 minutes on the phone. They were so excited that somebody was calling them back. So uh, th- that, so we, we did all of that, and, uh, but, you know, where we want to move this thing is really more to a wholesale kind of situation. So, mm-hmm. so, you know, I got my feet on the ground to get some cash flowing with, you know, direct sales, but, boy, is that a lot of work. And the last thing I want to do is be an Internet retailer. I mean, that, that's a whole business in mm-hmm. and of itself. So, um, so our focus here uh, has been, you know, we started on our own website in 2011, set up the um, Amazon. I don't know if anybody knows King Arthur Flower Company. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Been around a long time. Yep. First, first flower company, oldest flower company in the country. So, I, I, in terms of licensing and things that I did, I did a lot of cold calling. Um, you know, to talk to companies. I called the CEO of uh, King Arthur. You know, when I had my little goofy video from the mm-hmm. CAD, and believe it or not, they they agreed to meet with me, mm-hmm. um, and they were really excited about the product that's about it they weren't going to get involved there was no money there was no nothing but they really thought it was a neat product and it really gave me inspiration, get the inspiration. <laughs> um, well better than that they're they're a distributor all right There's, it's in their, it came out in their catalog in July yes. okay. um, but they didn't really believe in the product enough to really plunk down big money either um, you know and I, I have this problem every day still um, I was on the phone today with a new distributor with the same issues but I'm happy to say their entire month allotment that they got for their first month in July, they sold it in four days when the catalog came out, and, and they have quadrupled their order, you know, and, and brought everything in by month. So, I mean, the thing, just, they're thrilled. It just took off like crazy. And I knew it would, but they didn't know it. Um, and uh, so, you know, we're going to be working with them over the course of the fall, um, the um, The two big things that came out of IHA for me was one is I met a guy from Cabela's. You know Cabela's? Mm -hmm. I didn't know Cabela's sold house kitchen goods. They have a whole department of uh, kitchen goods. Started with dehydrators to make uh, venison jerky for the. uh, Okay, so they're looking for other products that you know the wives of hunters you know would use. So they got excited about the product, but you know Cabela's huge organization, they got a, you know, just one of their rounds is West Virginia, it's million square feet, it's got six miles of conveyor belts, I mean, they're just enormous, but, you know, if you saw the order they gave me for the first order, you'd laugh, I mean, it's just, it's a joke, and uh, for all that, you know, I got to set up EDI systems to be able to communicate with the computers, and all this ERP stuff, and I mean, the overhead, is just unbelievable, but, you know, I think, you know, they're going to launch us in their catalog the first week of August, and I suspect, you know, they publish 135 million catalogs a year, Okay, wow. So, you know, I suspect they'll be reordering. So, and that, that came out of going to IHA. Um, IHA, I hooked up with two buying clubs. These are really great ways if you've got kitchen gadgets or small products that you want to sell to specialty shops. These people all group together in uh, companies. There's a gourmet catalog and IHA are two of the big ones. And through them, we reach 350 specialty mm-hmm. stores. Uh, and we've got orders about 10% on the Mall? Excuse me? Check out
0: Sky Mall.
1: Uh, I did talk to Sky Mall. Um, now they may have an a, a plan but they offered me their B plan and the B plan you pay big time to get in their catalog I mean a lot of money so um, and there are other folks out there I mean there's QVC uh, which actually uh, is, is actually a pretty difficult company to deal with in terms of the contracts they have but they're sort of the second tier to QVC <coughs> where yeah they'll do you know like an infomercial but it costs you 15 grand they'll put it on the air um so the Sky Mall thing is too too rich for me, um, and I don't know how well it matches my demographic anyway. Okay, I know I have to go after a targeted market. You know, King Arthur is right there on top of it. And I think Cabela's will encompass it in their huge area. Um, the other big thing that came out of the show is is that um, and the the uh, Inventors um, Association actually set this up for me. They set they actually set me up. I had no idea what I was going into. They said, Lakeland is there from the UK, they're gonna be looking for the next big thing. So I signed up, I flew out a day early, I wanna go meet Lakeland, I looked up on the web, it looks like a great company, never heard of it before. So I ended up sitting down with the CEO of Lakeland, his company, him and his brother, he's run it for 35 years. So it's a, it's a huge specialty kitchen store chain in the UK, they have 60 stores, big catalog business. Um, and I got to pitch the product to him and he, I got 45 seconds into my pitch, he said, this is great. So uh, we're launching with Lakeland this fall. Again, you get down to the buyers, they're not going to put their money where their mouth is, and they're making the small upfront order. So it's all on me. You know, these companies must think I'm a bank or something. So they, they want me to build a 240 model. They want me to make new packaging for Europe. They want special videos. They want all kinds of Mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm going to have to set up a warehouse in. uh, They're going to buy it right out of China, but I'm going to have to warehouse product in Hong Kong and ship it to them as they demand. You know, they all run lean lean inventory. You know, they're not going to bring in six months supply. You know, they're going to hang that on you. So, you know, it's very, very tough. Um, QVC, great place to sell your product. Make sure it sells because if it doesn't, you have to take it back Mm -hmm. and pay shipping they got rubber band contracts with their suppliers. So, I mean, it's a really, really tough world, but um, it's been any, fun. Any interest out of markets for I have a distributor in China. So if you can believe it, uh, it's, a, it's a woman, an entrepreneur in Beijing. She started buying product off Amazon at list price, re-importing it into China and selling it with transformers because they're 240 volt. Mm. I mean, she must have been selling for $800 a piece. I have no idea. <laughs> but, you know, she... And now uh, with my 240, um, I, you'd ask about uh, safety. So real quick on that, yeah, absolutely. You plug into the wall, you got all these issues with safety. Right. So, so what I did there, you know, I, I talked to UL here in the U.S. and to Intertech that does the ETL. Um, and, but it just turned out to be way easier to do it in Hong Kong because they have offices over there. So I went with Intertech in Hong Kong. Uh, And got ETL and CETL, which gives me the U.S. and Canada. Um, So, TUV, um, we let's see, we've used TUV for the CE for Europe. That's the CE approval they need to go into Europe. So, so there's difference. So, TUV has is doing that for us right now um, in Hong Kong. So. Because we need the CE to get into Europe and the U.K. with the 240 volt, right, right. And th- And that's kind of the first level. You can do GS, which is another level, which is like the Cadillac version if you want to go to Germany. You don't really have to have it. Some stores might require it. But um, but everybody's got their own thing. So to go in, China has their own. It's the 3C to get imported into China. So we're doing that. Right now you have all your documents translated into Chinese. Korea's got their own. There's one for Australia, the IEC. I mean, they'll kill you. Listen. No, no. Everybody's different, and it, and That's every like and it's great. like five to ten thousand a pop. Yeah. You know, it's partly just tax. I mean, it's like it's a way for them to make the in, in Korea. It's a government laboratory, mm. right? So, um, and sometimes it's just mainly paperwork. I mean, the the one with ETL is tough. I mean, they you get them ten machines, they burn them, and you know, put them in environmental chambers, drop weights on them, you know, all kinds of things, and uh, so. Uh, that's, but you have to do it, yeah. What, what year do you think you'll break even? And what year do you think you'll make money? Um, so we're making money month by month. Uh, in terms of our original upfront investment, um, I think it's conceivable by next spring that we will break even. You know? You know, cause the development costs, you know, although you know, it's complicated, I did a lot of the stuff myself. So I got a lot of sweat. I mean, you can't include that sweat equity. I'll never break even on your time. Yeah, it's never, your time? never, never, never. Yeah. But um, but yeah, in, ter- in terms of that investment, I think you know we'll probably be up even. You know, I'll, I'll have a relatively healthy balance sheet by next spring. So I've got um, I've got a twenty-foot container. It'll be oh, actually um, I've been warehousing in Southern California, but I was able to. Uh, find a fulfillment house in southern uh, Berkshire County that does internet fulfillment. And so I've got a 20-foot container coming is going to go there. It'll be here next week in Newark. And I just bought another 40-foot to go somewhere that'll be here in October, plus another container of the 240-volt. So basically right now I'm spending every penny I've got and every penny I can borrow on inventory for um, the Christmas season because that's, you know, that's when you got to hit it. And what's
0: your turnaround time from... From your manufacturer in China to US? You know,
1: on contract it's sixty days from when I place a PO to when they ship. It's actually a little bit longer. I mean, everybody in the world wants their product built right now. You know, so yeah, I could I probably get it in thirty days if, if they make it in December or January, but in September, October. Um, and then, you know, then the shipping rates all go up. Uh, it's prime season right now, it starts in June, ends like in the mid November. And uh, you know, in a, in a in a in a decision about making you know product overseas, you really do have to look at shipping costs. You know, there's kind of this general perception that oh, when the price of oil went up, shipping prices went up, right? Because right, they use a lot of oil to run the ships. Well, in fact, when the price of oil went up, the prices went down because people stopped shipping, and the companies are competing to try to get people to ship, so they drop the prices. So now that the price of oil has come down and production's gone back up. Now they're killing us on the prices. I mean, I think uh, a container that I'm bringing over here, you know, just even compared to a year ago, it's like 30% higher. It cost me like $5,000 to ship a 20-foot container from Hong Kong to Massachusetts. So you better pack it full of a lot of product. So you really, really have to figure that in. Like I say, the, the distribution and transportation costs, you know, the fees you pay to Amazon, you know, right off the top, you know, for an Amazon store. You get the product at your warehouse, you have to ship it to the Amazon facility. You gotta pay the trucking companies, you know, hundreds of dollars a pallet. I mean, it's, the money just, so, it's tough. But, you know, it's been a lot of fun. I I really wouldn't, you know, and I I like the fact that I've had control of it. Um, And it's, you know, it's a lot of late nights, uh, but, So, we've done a lot with, um, my wife and I ran a video production company, you know, after I got laid off of my job in California, which has been real helpful for, uh, there were, this is a, a loop that we did for uh, the show and it put it up in some of the stores and uh, put up a YouTube channel. Um, just in terms of the product, one of the things that I did kind of almost as a second thought is I expanded the temperature range to turn it into a yogurt maker. Because for bread, you have to operate down sort of the 80s, 90s. But we took it up to 120, and now over the summer, which I thought would be a sleepy time, we're selling a lot of product for, a, for, for making yogurt. So having the multi-application of the product has really been good from a marketing standpoint. What percentage of your
0: sales are direct versus distributors?
1: Uh, well, let's see. I mean, if you take year to date, or, you know, product launch to date, it's You know it's almost all direct Um, July was uh, the first month that I really started doing heavy distribution and it was about uh, 60% distributors 40% uh, direct and I think probably by the fall it would probably be probably 70 probably 80 20 I would guess but you know one of the one of the byproducts for me is you know when you know when my product first went out in the first major catalog my Amazon say I could just look at my Amazon chart and see when the product catalog was released because my Amazon sales went way up. Because, I mean, the guys decided to charge twenty bucks for shipping. That wasn't my decision. I, 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 know, and you can go to Amazon and get Prime free shipping. You know, I can't I can't charge for shipping on Amazon. I ship through them. You know, it's fulfilled by Amazon. So, you know, some savvy people just go hunt around the internet and find it on Amazon and buy it from me. So and uh, so I make more money. So I'll I'll keep that direct channel for the for the time being, you know, at least in this country. Since I you know I set it all up, and now, you know, now that I've got the uh, you know I've got the manufacturing relationships, I've got the district piano set up, I've got the fulfillment set up. So uh, we've got we're starting work on a on another product that um, it's also a it's a it's a niche product definitely. I mean it. Um, but it's, it's, it, there are competitive products out there um, that uh, you can see in Bed Bath Beyond and some of the big stores. It's, it's a product I never would have gone after initially, um, but mine's going to fold, and uh, and so it's something that we can extend. You know, the technology that we have now um, and the investment that we made to be able to move on to another product. So if I didn't have to spend all the money on inventory, I probably work on that a little faster. How much inventory did you start out with? Well, um, three thousand units was the minimum buy. You know, basically the company won't, they really won't, don't want to make less than three thousand. Uh, so, a little bit less, basically, what filled a twenty forty foot container. So that's what I bought. And It was a big, big chunk to, to bite off, but it worked out. Worked out okay. Is yeah. there a story behind Road with the zero? And oh yeah. Throw it? My, yeah, my mother-in-law. Oh. So, actually, what that is, it's uh, it's Norwegian b- word for bread. It's it's actually it's a Norwegian word to out and my mother-in-law is Norwegian. And actually, the first proofer I ever built was for her. Oh. Just I bought her a I built her a folding proofer. I mean, it was a stupid looking thing out of plywood, um, but she loved it. And she lives out in South Dakota, and her neighbor saw it and went crazy. She said, "Oh, this is wonderful." See? So. Is that logo? name down as Bragg in about a four or five different places. Yeah, it's, well, it's brood, it's brood, but we just. Did, but anyway, it's it's and that logo was made for me by WindStamp. I had one before, but it's pretty goofy looking. I mean, they did a nice job of that. It's very yeah, nice. I like that. It's it looks very like it's nice. kind of memorable. It's very nice, very catchy. So, very nice. Yeah. Aren't you going to make three different sizes and four different colors? <laughs> well, believe it or not, so the uh, if you go look at Amazon you got some four-star reviews, and they're almost from people who think it's too small. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't fit. There's a thing called a professional half sheet that bakers use, and it won't fit one of those in there. But, I mean, I had to stop somewhere. I mean, you know, when it, we made the thing larger and larger. I mean, it's, I don't know if I would try to build one larger with the same construction technique. using Because, I mean, trying to make a big panel like that, now you're starting to, you're starting to make something that essentially looks like a flat-screen TV in terms of plastic, and you don't have a piece of flat glass to bolt it to. It just wants the potato chip. Mm-hmm. So you need some kind of internal framework. So, so, you know, and it's great when you get connected with customers, now you have people telling you what to make. <coughs> okay, we want it bigger, uh, we want multiple shelves, we want to be able to have it cool as well as heat. You know, they can buy a wine cooler, so why don't you put a thermoelectric module in it and make it cooler? Okay, we can do that. But actually, you need to insulate it to do that. So this is not really insulating. It's cheap to heat. It's expensive to cool. But people want to be able to chill their dough. So, and maybe that's even like a a smaller market or people who want to, you know, proof their dough at 78 degrees in Dallas in the summer and they want to cool it. So, uh, you know, we do get a lot of those suggestions. But right now, I mean, we focused on the, the 240 volt was pretty easy. Just had to redesign the PC board and make a new heater Mm. and, you know, spend more money on tests. So that's where we're going right now. Now, does this actually
0: bake
1: the bread too? No. no it's just it's just a proofing of it. And, and that's the kind of the idea is, is that we if you want to make really great bread, you need to take it out of this proofer and you need to put it into a hot oven i mean even better like maybe with some steam or something like that but I mean one of the killers of a, of a bread machine there was a lot of discussion that came up with investors in the food well, you know why wouldn't you just use a bread machine i don't know if you've ever tried one. i mean they they make make your house smell great, mm. but the bread is like mm. and part of the reason is is that it makes the bread and so if you cook anything, um, you know that the last thing you're going to do is take a loaf of bread or a pie or something, put it into a cold oven, and turn the oven on. And things can come out like a brick, right? You need to put it in a hot oven. That's the problem with the bread machine. This is that, you know, it's, it's at a temperature of like 80 degrees, and the bread is sitting there, and then it heats up to 350 degrees. You know, I mean? and that's not the way you make good food. You know, it, it reminds me of, I was a little kid, and I
0: went to somebody's house, and they had this wooden box. And apparently somebody's uncle or father or grandfather or something with a light bulb in it yep. and if you turn it off and on. Go. My grandmother had one, you
1: know. And yeah. then
0: the other thing is like the pantries that were the cooking pantries. They, uh, when the sun was at the right time that was it was in an earthenware bowl and then people uh, have been doing this
1: for thousands there. of years and coming and actually modern kitchens are much more unfriendly oh, yeah. to oh, this obviously. kind of thing and you know, inside, you know, temperature control, air conditioning, you know. We started selling them in June down in in Phoenix, you know, why is anybody buying this in Phoenix? And it's because inside they got the air conditioner running. It's seventy degrees. It's too cold, Mm. and they don't want to let their house get hot. People used to be able to put it on top of the refrigerator, but they don't put coils on the back of refrigerators anymore. I mean, they're underneath, right? So the top of the refrigerator is not warm anymore. So, I mean, it's a neat product, and people really get excited about it. And we've got thousands of letters from people, you know, that are just. I mean, I just. It warms my heart all the time just to pop over my email and just have somebody writing. They just write me and say, "I love this thing. I couldn't live without it. I don't I kind of, you know, don't know how to live without one." So it makes it. it i a nice. a
0: sparkling idea. Of course, there's a guy that he's somewhere in Western Mass called Seven Hills Mills, and he makes bread mixes. So an um, alliance, maybe, or my word. I
1: don't know Seven Hills Mills. There's some wonderful bread baking places there. But he doesn't bake. He no, he uh, makes mixes. He sells it. the mixes.
0: And he's I'm got a nice dad. packaging
1: thing so that he's at farmers markets. He's described. I didn't film any box on those for my, my daughter who likes to do stuff. Right beer? i so. um, have to get it. Maybe. maybe. But, but, um, I still need some help with the phrase bread proofing. I don't understand how proofing fits in. Well, proofing good. proofing is a, is a term that's used um, uh, by professional bakers that has to do with. Getting ye- activating yeast, okay. Activating yeast. activating yeast. So you've got yeast. This is just yeast bread, and there's there's a couple of different things you do. One is is that in a lot of recipes you actually uh, you, you got to let the, the the dough go for like 24 or 48 hours. Basically, it ferments. It ferments kind of like when you make yogurt. It grows bacteria. It grows makes lactic acid. You make you know all kinds of things to generate the flavors, and then then the, you want the dough to, to rise. So you know, people, you know, there people that are just so passionate about this making sound. At what point does and it start proofing? Proofing? What's that? At what point does it start proofing? It's basically when you activate the yeast and let the yeast grow and it creates carbon dioxide. It's a process. Yeah, that's called, yeah, proofing. And in, oh, in, the, in England, they call it proving proving the bread. I mean it's just an old term. You look it up, you know, it's I just see. it's just been used for years. So for it's bread yeah. yeah, I mean we decided to use it even though we know that most people don't know what it means. even a lot of people that are involved, you know, know it's about bread. bread. Yeah, yeah, but it's the professional term. So as opposed to bread rising box or or something like that. So mm. I mean I did mention um, you know if we start the thing with the easy rise, which I don't know it's a goofy name but, you know Malcolm Chisholm did my uh, trademark, which we basically trademarked Broad Taylor, and he said, you know, the best kind of trademark is an arbitrary mark, not a descriptive mark. You try to do something descriptive, you're just going to be in fights for the rest of your life, because they've basically all been thought of, you know, people who try to come up with a product name that describes their product. I mean, it's kind of like, it's sort of uh, almost the classic uh, sort of homegrown inventor idea that you name your product like what it does the easy grow or the handy saw or you know whatever and these are really really difficult things to do when you get to the point of trying to actually register a trademark if you just come up with a name you know then you're free and clear nobody's going to come after you um, if you come up with something that's unique so that's part of the reason we did it I'm real I'm real happy with the way with it. Yeah. It really so it's 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 been it's been a journey, and uh, you know sometimes I just thought it was absolutely insane, but once you get to a certain point, you can't really turn back, and uh, you know it's been a lot of fun. So anyway, I'm happy to be able to share it with you. Yes. Thank you. What's the name of the company in Minnesota? Uh, it's Proto Mold. Proto Mold. Okay. Really super organization. Well, I want to thank you, Michael,
0: for your talk. Appreciate it. I'm sure if anybody has any more questions for Michael, you'll be able to stick around for just a yeah. few minutes. Yeah.